CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The longest war in American history is coming to an end. It's been two decades since U.S. troops first set foot in Afghanistan, over which time thousands of American lives have been lost, trillions in American treasure spent, in this special edition of Hold the Line, we'll look back at the 20-year conflict and ask what was achieved, and also what does the future hold for the Afghan people. After 20 years, a trillion dollars spent training and equipping hundreds of thousands of Afghan national security and defense forces. 2,448 Americans killed, 20,722 more wounded, and untold thousands coming home with unseen trauma to their mental health. I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan with no reasonable expectation of achieving a different outcome. Welcome to this special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. When it comes to matters of war like this one, we should all be thinking about what's best for our troops, best for America. It shouldn't be about partisanship. These are, these are not the kind of topics, these are not the decisions that have to be made by the commander-in-chief and by those at the Pentagon that should be infused with politics. And we wanted to take a look today at both what happened in Afghanistan as much as we can looking at what was gained, if anything, and also what it looks like going forward into the future. Let's remember that the Trump administration wanted to draw down troops entirely as well. So it would be unprincipled for me now to sit here and say that Trump supporters like myself have not wanted there to be a removal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. But that doesn't mean we can't discuss what will be left in place, what the Afghan forces are up against, and what the Taliban is doing to try to overthrow the government that we spent 20 years mentoring, training, equipping, funding. And it is rapidly falling apart. President Biden is already telling us that the future is certainly up to the Afghan people. Here's what he says. The United States did what we went to do in Afghanistan to get the terrorists to attack us on 9-11 and deliver justice to Osama bin Laden and to degrade the terrorist threat to keep Afghanistan from becoming a base from which attacks could be continued against the United States. We achieved those objectives. That's why we went. We did not go to Afghanistan to nation-build. 
And it's the right and the responsibility of Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country. There seems to be something approaching a bipartisan consensus, or at least a bipartisan majority, that does want withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is currently underway. 95% of U.S. troops have already been removed from the country. There is some force presence there. And one thing we'll certainly discuss is what will be left either behind in Afghanistan or in the region to try to handle the original mission. And let's all remember that as to why we went into Afghanistan. It was in response to the attacks of 9-11 and because the Taliban had played host to Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda training camps under bin Laden's leadership and Zawahiri's leadership were operating freely and openly in Afghanistan. We went there on a counterterrorism mission that then expanded into a nation-building campaign. Now we're told that there will still be uh, a counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan. Here's Secretary of Defense Austin. You know, our ma major focus going forward is to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, violence, uh, terrorism cannot be exported from, uh, from Afghanistan uh, to our homeland. And so we'll maintain the capability to be able to not only uh, observe that, but also uh, address that uh, if, there, if it does emerge. They will still have in the region some forces to strike against terrorist threats to the U.S. and its allies around the world. That's the promise that's being made by the Secretary of Defense. What would that look like? How could we have resources? What would the force structure be in the region? How effective will they be? And then the giant question that looms over all of this, how long can the Afghan government hold out? Is it possible that they could actually maintain control of the country, the capital? They've already lost almost 50% of the territory that is technically within Afghan borders. Here is Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying it's not a foregone conclusion the Taliban will win. The future of Afghanistan is squarely in the hands of the Afghan people. And there are a range of possible outcomes uh, in Afghanistan. And I want to emphasize repeatedly, and I've said this before, a negative outcome, a Taliban automatic military takeover, is not a foregone conclusion. We'll see. We've got experts here, a great lineup of guests to talk to you about all these different aspects of the situation in Afghanistan, past and present and future. Coming up, we'll speak to a decorated veteran of the war in Afghanistan about this U.S. withdrawal. Retired Army Ranger Sean Parnell joins us next. While many are celebrating the end of America's longest war, the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan is bittersweet, especially for veterans who fought there and have known what the sacrifices are on their side and on the Afghan national military side. Beginning in October of 20, uh, 2001, with Operation Enduring Freedom, an estimated 800,000 men and women of the United States military were deployed to Afghanistan at one time or another. According to the Department of Defense, over 2,300 died in the war with over 20,000 wounded. That doesn't include the unseen wounds many veterans face upon their return from PTSD and, and other symptoms and syndromes. Seems like a high price to pay for a nation that now appears to be on the verge of reverting back to Taliban control, the very enemy that the U.S. military was sent in part to defeat. Joining me now is decorated combat veteran and Republican candidate for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania, 
Sean Parnell. Sean, my friend, good to see you. Good to see you too, Buck. Thanks for having me. As a combat veteran of Afghanistan, as you see that U.S. troops are out, they're leaving the country, what do you think? What do you feel? Well, um, it is bittersweet. As you said in your intro, think about it like this. I just turned 40 a couple of days ago, and we've been in that country for, what, 20 years now? So half of my life, our, our nation's been deployed to Afghanistan. All of my adult life, the only profession that I've really known outside of a post-military life is a nation that's at war in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, we fought in that country for 485 days. As you know, 85% of my men were wounded some twice. I think one guy was wounded three times. I was wounded myself. You know, we gave a lot in that country. You know, back then our mission was to find Osama bin Laden and take care of the Afghan people. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't find Osama bin Laden, but we found we found thousands of of enemy troops all along the Afghan-Pakistan border, and we killed 350 uh, some of the worst terrorists the world has, has ever known in those mountains. And I think the world is a better place for it. And and I think Afghanistan as a country is in a better place for it. But I just worry that all of our gains will be lost after a few months uh, uh, after the United States pulls out, and that's. It's hard, Buck. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here. You know, I haven't talked to anybody about this, but I find myself wondering what was it all for? I mean, I, we got Osama bin Laden, right? We taught a lot of young Afghan girls to read. And I do believe that we made that country a better place, built wells and schools and, and really helped the Afghan people build their country. But to date, I've probably lost 30 of my closest friends. And that's just a hard pill to swallow, man. You know, yes, we did good things for that country, but when it was all said and done, was it worth it? I, I think we did great things there, but the human cost was certainly high. Sean, the Afghan side of this, and I mean not the Taliban side, obviously, but the allied Afghan side, military, uh, political leadership, why, why couldn't they get it together? I mean, wh why, after 20 years of the United States mentoring troops, providing security for Afghan politicians, the president of Afghanistan and others were able to rely on, you know, the United States being there to back them up. And it feels like it's all so fragile still. Why, why couldn't they get it? To, I don't know how else to say other than why couldn't they get it together more on their side with the U.S. doing everything they could to let them be self-sustaining? Yeah, you're so right. And, and I think one word, Buck, corruption. And, and corruption, what we would call corruption here in the United States is sort of woven into the fabric of Afghan culture. And it's not, it's not seen as like a negative thing. Like, I don't want people watching your show from the West thinking like I'm calling the Afghan, I'm calling the Afghan people corrupt. No, it's just, it's just their culture is so different from ours. Um, they don't see the way that they conduct themselves in negotiations as, as corrupt. They have a different set of standards. Um, and look, the Afghan National Army, the Afghan border police, the Afghan police, by and large, are courageous Afghans and patriots who love their country and, and want to protect it. But at the end of the day, if you can't pay them, if you can't get them water, if you can't get them food because the government that's supposed to be supporting you is siphoning that, is siphoning the cash and, and those supplies away from you, you're not going to have an army for very long. And so a lot of it feels so fragile because 
at every single layer of leadership in that country, uh, in that country, from the president down to ground level commanders, there's corruption. They take for themselves before they give to their people or their troops. And that's just always sort of the Afghan way. And I, I think part of that, Buck, is because the country for thousands of years is so tribal. You know, like we understand Afghan Afghanistan as lines drawn on a map in a country with clearly defined borders. But the people that live in Afghanistan, especially if you go to the border, right? Uh, most people that live along the border of Afghanistan don't even know that they live in a country called Afghanistan. You know, the views of, of the world, you know, that they have are, are all tribal and, and seen through the prism of tribalism. And most most Afghans don't even know how old they are. You know, uh, uh, there'll be tribes that are separated by a few miles in Afghanistan that have never seen one another. Um, and so it, Afghanistan was always going to be an uphill climb in terms of nation building, just because of how fractured that country is and has been. So, so I, 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 got, I, I got to ask, um, on the U.S. military leadership side of this, and I was in Afghanistan a decade ago interfacing with the top brass, four-star general in theater. And it always felt like there was this, now we're going to do what was done before, right? The year before, the cycle of troops who were here before. We're going to do it better, though. And it felt like yep. year in and year out, just based on me seeing from, from the CIA side of it, how the military was conducting itself here, there were the people like you who were fighting the battles and protecting the villages and building the wells. But at the very top, there were generals who, who kept coming up with, oh, no, we're going to do it right this time. Was there careerism involved here and not wanting to level with the American people that this was effectively an impossible task to create an, a self-sustaining Afghanistan? I mean, I, I know there's a lot of different generals involved here, a lot, but, but generally speaking, pardon the expression, were the top people in the United States military strategically honest over the last decade and really the last two decades with what was possible there? Now, look, I think that what you're talking to speaks with issues within the, the Army's promotion system and the meritocracy that we use as officers uh, to promote people from within. And so what I mean by that is there's a real reluctance as a battlefield commander to get on the battlefield update brief with a commander that's higher than you and say, you know what, things are out of control, we can't find the enemy, um, and we're struggling here, right? Because if you, if you give a report like that, and you give a report like that on a regular basis, you're not gonna get promoted, you're gonna get poor marks, and the guy that's out there saying, sir, we've got this area on lockdown, we've killed 20 enemy troops, we've got no problems, right? And then you see that report echoed up the chain of command to where you get to the point where there are generals, like you're a general, you're overseeing the entire theater of Afghanistan, you're thinking to yourself, well, hey, nothing's wrong. And part of that problem is people are afraid to give honest feedback from the ground because if you want to get promoted, you can't really give honest feedback. You can't really think outside the box. So what happens is, is that guys like me, not just me, but anyone who's seen ground combat in Afghanistan that is willing to give an honest assessment of what's going on there, they end up getting out because combat sucks. You know, it's just brutal. And if you're feeling like your words aren't being heard by the chain of command, right, you tend to get out. And what you're left with as officers progress up the chain are officers who are willing to play the game, 
right? And that's how you end up with a man like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mark Milley, who seems, you know, most Republicans, I think, see this now, and in and indeed probably some Democrat Democrats and independents as well. General Milley is a politician. And yeah. a, a lot of it feels like four stars, feels like anybody with stars on their shoulder these days is yes. having to play a lot of political games in the DOD yeah. sphere. But Sean, thank you, my friend. Good to see you and thank you for your service. Yeah, thanks for having me, Buck. As U.S. troops complete their withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban continues to gain ground. When we come back, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Roggio, joins us to take a look at the Afghan National Forces and their efforts to hold the line against the advancing enemy. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Two decades after being toppled by the U.S.-led coalition during Operation Enduring Freedom, the Taliban seems once again on the cusp of reestablishing dominance over much of Afghanistan. This map, recently published by the BBC, shows that the Taliban controls or is vying for control of roughly two-thirds of the entire country. That number is going to increase rapidly unless government forces can hold out against this onslaught. For insight in the Taliban strategy here in the aftermath of U.S. withdrawal, I want to bring in senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Roggio. Bill, good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Buck. It's a pleasure. So let's just start with the speed of the decline of government control here. Put this into context for us. How rapidly is the Taliban seizing territory and how does this factor into what their timeline is? Yeah, the Taliban, so the, what the Taliban did was they waited for the U.S. to announce its withdrawal and then begin withdrawing its forces. The Taliban um, did this because U.S. Air Forces um, 
U.S. military aircraft have been effective at keep at, at killing their fighters and keeping them from taking the cities. And once the U.S. military was focused on withdrawal, it wouldn't have the excess um, forces to be able to strike at the Taliban. So that began in April 14th. By mid um, May, the Taliban started taking handful of districts by the end of May and beginning of June. That's when the real onslaught began. So I've been the person that began recording this. And by when President Biden made his announcement, there were 73 districts under Taliban control out of 407. And then today, it's a, that number is 223. And most of that occurred from the beginning of June up until today. And most of this has taken place in northern Afghanistan and western Afghanistan. This is where many of the power brokers within the Afghan government and outside of the Afghan government as well who are anti-Taliban. This is where they reside. This is where they derive their power from from local fighters, from taxing, um, from running governments, things of that nature. And, and if the Taliban can deny that to the Afghan power brokers, this territory to the power brokers, the Afghan government is in a very, very difficult position. So they've started their offensive. I mean, a lot of people would assume that in an in a insurgency situation like this, they would consolidate, the Taliban would consolidate those areas where they're already strong and then try to project force into the north, in particular the country where the Northern Alliance and famously where the U.S., was able to partner and establish essentially a foothold after 9-11 to, to get the roll-up of the Taliban going. So they're going right into the power base of what would be the pushback against the Taliban outside of Kabul, at least, and having success so far. Is that where we are? That is correct, Buck. Yes. Yeah, so the South and the East, this is where the Taliban are strongest. Um, they already have a, a solid lock on those areas. They could either expend their forces trying to take cities, which they are. They're fighting inside Kandahar City, inside of Lashkargah, the capital of Helmand Province, and other and Ghazni City, the capital of Ghazni. They're doing that, but they're not. They didn't devote all their forces in order to take what I would consider to be the low-hanging fruit in the south, particularly. They took it up to the. They they went up into the north. A lot of these districts that the Taliban have taken control of, these were areas that were heavily contested to begin with. So what we've seen over time is that the number of Taliban-controlled districts increased, the contested districts have decreased, but also the number of, of districts that were outright controlled by the government have decreased, about 20 or, or so of those districts. So that means the Taliban didn't even have a presence in about 20 districts in Afghanistan. They rolled up and they forced the government either, either to surrender or to flee. So yeah, I think this is a very crafty strategy. And I'd, I'd like to point out one other thing, Buck. The, the um, this strategy it was executed, it was planned, organized, and executed by the Taliban under the nose of NATO, U.S., and Afghan um, intelligence, and they've been organ planning and organizing this offensive for years. It's no accident that once the U.S. withdrawal was announced, the Taliban went on the offensive. They're they're going for it now. I think they're they're we're seeing a slowdown of this right now. Um, they're, I think they are consolidating a lot of those areas. They control the government, taking back a handful of districts here and there. And then there's a lot of fighting. But the Taliban, I think they actually exceeded their expectations with this event. Are they offering some form of, of, of amnesty to the government troops, in essence, in these cases? I mean, take us into some of the tactics they're using to establish control. Are they offering through Taliban propaganda, if we show up, meaning the Taliban, and you put down your guns, 
will will let uh, will let bygones be bygones, so to speak, or are they making examples of people, a combination? What are the tactics they're using to establish control on the ground? Yeah, primarily what the Taliban have been doing is they've been getting in a lot of these. Some of the cases they're fighting and gaining control of the districts militarily. Um, in a large number of these cases, the Taliban, they're going into these contested areas where Afghan security forces have been cut off from reinforcement, from resupply. Um, they sometimes can't get wounded troops out unless it's by helicopter. So the Taliban are sending tribal leaders who are sympathetic to their cause um, into these areas, into these outposts, military base, district centers, and saying, Look, you could either fight to the death, we are willing to do so, or you can leave with honor, you could leave this outpost. You even see videos when they're retreat when they're leaving the, the the Afghan soldiers are leaving these bases, they're leaving with a rifle on their shoulder and that's part of this sort of you don't want to take a man of the manhood of a Pashtun or of an Afghan away by taking away their weapon, but everything else is left behind. The vehicles, the the ammunition, um everything else within that base. So it's, it's been very effective for them to send in those interlocutors, those mediators in to convince Afghan soldiers who have been largely in many cases abandoned by their own government and their own military chain of command to just hold out and fight. Um, and that's why you're seeing large numbers of troops surrendering. I've seen uh, videos of scores and scores of troops surrendering. I've also seen one video, which I can't verify, and it's been on uh, CNN and elsewhere, where there purports to show Afghan soldiers, the commandos being executed. Um, this may or may not ha have happened. If it did happen, and I wouldn't put it past the Taliban, it's the rare case because the, the Taliban has succeeded in getting so many troops to surrender, so many districts and bases to be turned over to the Taliban by offering this amnesty. But one other quick thing here. The Taliban are taking photographs. They are taking names. If these soldiers uh, do show up uh, in the future, they will pay a price from the Taliban. And and I, I want to know where we stand, or uh, pardon me, where the Taliban stands, where we stand from looking across the battlefield at them on shadow governance and the status of in the areas that they control. Are they already starting to provide uh, government functions in, in, in essence? Are, are they now law, you know, the providers of, of law and justice and taxes and collecting them and all. Is that happening yet or is that still to be established? Yes, that is happening. So when this offensive kicked off, the Taliban deputy emir, his name is Sarajuddin Haqqani, he's the head of the Haqqani network, who, by the way, the United Nations also identified as a leader within al-Qaeda. Um, he issued a, a, a lengthy statement that was to all of the Taliban. And his message was, when we take these areas, we must be prepared to govern them. We must govern justly. We mustn't abuse the people. We must dispense justice, et cetera, et cetera. The Taliban have had a, a robust um, governance project. It's nothing like we would expect here from the US government, from US aid or anything like that. But one of the key things that they are they have been very effective at doing is dispensing justice. It's something the it's a country 40 years at war. Um, and there's numerous land disputes in every place because people leaving their homes, other people living in them. The Taliban have proven to settle these disputes there quickly. Whether they're fair or not, the Afghan people are accepting the the um, results. But the Taliban has also done things like uh, reorganize the schools and, and things of that nature and try to provide aid. Again, it's rudimentary, but to the Taliban, Remember, what it wants is it wants to reestablish its government. It's called the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And to be a government, 
government. It has to govern. The Taliban recognize this. Again, it may not be up to our levels. It may, but but the Afghans, they don't need much. And the Taliban wants to provide just enough to make them look legitimate. Bill, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate the expertise. Thank you, sir. A pleasure. While American troops are evacuating Afghanistan, the U.S. military will maintain a small presence in that nation for at least the next few months. After the break, Amber Smith, a retired Army combat helicopter pilot, will join us to explain how U.S. air power might still affect the war in the days and months ahead. Stay with us. While U.S. troops are pulling out of Afghanistan, that doesn't mean American involvement in the country will come to an end entirely. According to Pentagon officials, U.S. military, and particularly the Navy and Air Force, will remain active in the war at least into September. This leaves open the option of airstrikes against the Taliban in defense of Afghan national forces and local allies. Without boots on the ground, what effect, if any, can American air power have in Afghanistan? Amber Smith is a former deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Outreach and a former U.S. Army helicopter combat pilot and air mission commander. She joins me now. Amber, good to see you. Great to see you, Buck. So what kind of assets would we be able to deploy from, from the air specifically to try to help the Afghan National Security Forces, military, police, and all the rest in their fight against the Taliban? So if we don't have ground elements in the country, it's going to have to be assets from the Air Force or from the Navy who have those longer range fuel capabilities. Um, there's not gonna be any sort of US helicopter capabilities um, without us having a presence in those bases like we've seen the US withdraw from in recent weeks. Uh, I will say that this poses a significant risk when you are sending American pilots over hostile ter territory to uh, work with people like the Afghan National Army and the security forces there because there is no sort of uh, recovery protocols with U.S. personnel in case there's any sort of a maintenance issue or crash, something like that. I mean, how effective can such airstrikes from the uh, Air Force and Navy be in the combat environment that you know from flying many missions there in Afghanistan without U.S. Uh, air combat controllers and, and forces on the ground to help direct them? Yeah, so without uh, air traffic or JTACs, the, the people on the ground who are usually providing visuals and talking on the radios to those pilots in the air, it's going to be uh, very risky and often dangerous. There's lots of um, higher risks of fratricide, um, friendly on friendly sort of uh, misidentification, um, not having positive ID uh, with some of those Afghan forces that we are working with. And so it's really, I wanna say it may help them in the short term, in the long term, it's not gonna be that much of a um, 
you know, efficient use of funds, you could say, it's going to be very challenging. You're going to have a language barrier, which I've worked with uh, when I was over there. And it is very, very challenging. I have personal experience flying into um, essentially a firefight on the ground. I'm in a helicopter and we do not have U.S. forces there. This was back in 2008. Imagine what it looks like uh, today. And we didn't have comms with any U.S. forces on the ground. Um, so we had to make all sorts of decisions without the information that we, na we needed to make what we were trying to do successful. So it's just a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces, um, and it puts those pilots in a tough situation. I mean, one area of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan uh, that was ongoing for the entirety of, of, of our time there was trying to mentor, train up Afghan uh, military forces, notably ground forces, but but also, Amber, to, to what degree were we able to and have we been able to get the Afghan security forces to have rotary and fixed wing aircraft to deploy on their own? I mean, are, are they in a position to bring some of their own air capabilities in a meaningful way to this fight against the Taliban? So there have been multiple programs in terms of building up their flight programs. They still have a Black Hawk company. But I will tell you, the problem isn't training pilots. It is ongoing maintenance. And so when you have these aircraft that the United States have provided, um, these multi-million dollar machines, uh, you have to maintain them um, in order to safely fly them. And that is where some of the problems come in. We can train their pilots to fly them, but once they go out of currency and they need all of that maintenance work, that's where the problems start happening. And then that's why you see, you know, broken aircraft sitting on a runway that they've parted out for other aircraft and, and the, the fleet just gets smaller and smaller until they don't have anything left. So right now, would you assess that it's unlikely that the Afghan air wing such as it is, uh, and I mean for the, you know, obviously for the, uh, the forces of the government of Afghanistan, um, not able to bring a, a substantial piece to the fight? Is, is this really just going to be a ground war that we're seeing play out against the Taliban? They may have aviation assets for a short period of time, but long term, this is going to um, not be any sort of an air war. They may attempt to lean on the U.S. government and the U.S. military, like I said, for that aerial support, but it's going to look more like uh, it's not going to be close air support. It's not going to be helicopters and gunships. If anything, it's going to be, you know, F-18s, F-22s, uh, bomber type aircraft, which they may not use um, because of precision and all sorts of rules of engagement that go into the, those types of decision making. Um, and, and that's what I was emphasizing earlier is that it just gets a little bit messy when you don't have those people on the ground who are helping um, target for the munitions that are falling. What about uh, drones and drone programs, either in assistance to the Afghan National Security Forces or that they're operating themselves? Is that something, is that, is that a part of a program that would be able to at least give them surveillance uh, assistance? Yeah, so uh, with UAVs and drones, the same issues come up with uh, maintenance. And so when they have the uh, capabilities to fly them, uh, 
they have to have some sort of a maintenance program that is able to sustain uh, what they need to do to keep them flying. So they may be able to use U.S. assets for a period of time, um, but any assets that they have as well, they have to maintain that program. And that's where we keep seeing, you know, year after year, we have provided these programs to the Afghan military and they just continue to fail. Uh, Amber, given the rapid deterioration we're already seeing in Afghanistan, uh, how concerned are you that there will be a push to put uh, additional assets, air assets, special operations, et cetera, back in country in the next few months just to try to slow down the toppling dominoes? Yeah, that's definitely a concern of mine that seems like the yo-yo effect that we have seen in the Middle East uh, the last couple of decades is that as soon as there, as soon as there is a rise in whatever enemy we were currently fighting, the quick answer is to, you know, send in special operations troops. That's not the answer here. We have known what Afghanistan is going to look like for some time within months to a year of us leaving. Um, those of us that, you know, the Afghan government will try for a period of time, but the reality is, is that the Taliban is going to take back over in terms of um, uh, the government in that country. And so that's what the reality looks like. If we wanna continue this special operations game where we send them in every so often um, to push back the Taliban, that's delaying the inevitable. The, the future of Afghanistan looks as I exactly just described it. It doesn't matter if it's in two months or if we continue to play this yo-yo game for the next decade. It just matters on how many U.S. forces and how many billions of dollars we spend in the meantime. Amber, thank you so much for your expertise and for your service. Uh, it's good to see you. Thanks, Buck. Great to see you. We'll be back with more of this special edition of Hold the Line. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
While we rightfully honor the men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces who served in Afghanistan, it's also important to remember that American servicemen weren't the only ones putting their lives on the line for our side during the war. The U.S. effort was also supported by tens of thousands of Afghan nationals serving in support roles, most notably as interpreters. As a condition of their employment, many were promised special immigrant visas, or SIVs, which would allow them to come to America when their service was completed. Unfortunately, many interpreters remain in Afghanistan awaiting their visas while their lives are imperiled by the steady advance of the Taliban. So what's being done to honor America's commitment, our promise to these often unsung heroes? Joining me now is Amadullah Siddiqui, a former Afghan interpreter and SIV ambassador for the No One Left Behind organization. Amadullah, thank you for being with us. As U.S. troops leave the country, what are you hearing about the situation of fellow interpreters who are still in Afghanistan? Uh, first of all, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, uh, we receive emails on a daily basis, emails, messages uh, through our social media platform, even though uh, most of them cannot or do not have access to the internet, but uh, they find ways to connect with us and, 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 and tell us all their stories, you know, the threats they have been through and the problems they are being faced on a daily basis. Yeah, no, uh, you know that 18 plus thousand interpreters are still left behind and they are waiting for, uh, for the United States to keep their promise and bring them back home. Uh, a lot of them, you know, they, they, the, first of all, you know, we, we uh, respect the wedding process, but the, it's, it takes too long. What, 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 is, so what is the biggest hurdle and what's, it would seem like this is rather straightforward, right? They've worked for the U.S. military, they were promised. The United States should keep its promises. Is this just bureaucratic slowness? It is. It is the slowness. Yes, we respect you know the the vetting process of the SIVs in the United States. Uh, at the same time, you know, three and a half years is too much for only a paperwork. It normally takes three to six, three, three, six to nine months, you know, to to get all the paperwork done and and, and you know and and get a person visas. But three and a half years is too much. It's uh, we we don't understand why it takes too long. And, and at the same time, as I said, you know, we respect the vetting process, but it shouldn't take that long. And what kind of threat are interpreters who stay behind under uh, from the Taliban? Has the Taliban already made it clear? Or are they putting out pronouncements, leaflets that are essentially threats against any interpreters that remain behind? I mean, give give people an understanding of how dire the situation is for those who help the U.S. and are now stuck in Afghanistan? Actually, we do not trust Taliban. They have killed many of our lives back in, in, in two decades. Uh, you know that uh, recently and, and the Taliban are capturing the biggest cities in Afghanistan and they are persecuting our allies, those who worked, who risked their lives for the United Forces and their lives of, the lives of their families. So they're torturing them, you know, for assisting the United States Army. And is there any other option? I mean, assuming that some of these delays uh, right now seem like they're going to continue in getting interpreters out of Afghanistan, are there, uh, any, are there any other countries that are trying to step in here, other NATO allies, for example, that may try to get them out? Is there, you know, if, if the U.S. is moving too slowly, is the U.K. or Germany an option? How does that work? So actually, we promised them, and we should keep our promise to bring our last home. Uh, 
And uh, last week, the president, you know, announced and said that 2,500 people, uh, interpreters will directly, uh, you know, evacuate it and bring them to D.C. And, and after that, you know, the question is, what will happen to the 16 plus thousand people, including their families? And the third countries, you know, we first of all, we want them to bring them to one of the U.S. territory, the U.S. soil. Uh, if not, then there should be a country where these interpreters and these folks should feel safe in order to get out of that, you know, a dangerous place. So, I mean, you're, the, you're an ambassador for uh, No One Left Behind, a nonprofit trying to help interpreters. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, what the organization does, and, and perhaps what needs to happen to get the kind of attention necessary at policy level, uh, at the decide, deciding uh, level of, of the government, in order to get ter interpreters out of Afghanistan and fulfill this obligation, this promise, as you rightly point out, that we, the American people, made to Afghans who helped. Uh, well, the No Only Behind current mission of, is to facilitate the SIV resettlement in the United States. And we keep our nation's promise by, you know, trying to fix the State Department's 14-step SIV process uh, with its three and a half years wait time, which is too much, and by providing emergency financial aid and youth, you know, vehicles to our newly arrived SIVs uh, to the United States. And to, the, to your question that what we uh, as a people can do, uh, so what I would suggest is we all get need to get out of our comfort zone in email, text, or call our congressmen and women, uh, and this, obviously the senators, you know, to act immediately in order to keep our promise. Um, I have to ask, uh, given what you're seeing right now, the news stories about Taliban advances and something we're talking about extensively on this show, how worried are you that there could be an all-out collapse? Do, are you hopeful that the Afghan national government's forces will be able to uh, stop and then turn around this Taliban momentum? So actually, yes, we believe in the stability of the, United, the, the Afghan national forces. We believe in their strength. But at the same time, you know, the Taliban, it, it, they're, they're, they're moving forward in capturing all the cities and in, in, in killing our allies, yes. So very concerning. All right. Well, anything that we can do yeah, to help, any, you know, anything we can do to help get interpreters out, please let us know. Is there a website people can go for No One Left Behind? Yes. So you can go to noonelef.org. Noonelef.org. So there, you know, you, you, can, you can find too many stories out there. Yeah. People should go check it out. Thank you so much yeah. for what you're doing and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, that's all the time we have for this special edition of Hold the Line. But before we go, I just want to say thank you for watching The First TV and supporting this network, the only one dedicated to protecting free speech. Reminder, you can watch my show live or on demand at any time with The First TV app. The best part, The First TV app is 100% free. Just search The First TV in the App Store on your phone, tablet, or smart TV and download it today. Special thanks to all my guests for sharing their expertise and experience. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.